is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, September 15, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. Taylor, Sarah, and Bruce are working back from Connecticut. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. And guys, we talked all year about whether or not Heim Bloom would be let go by the Red Sox. And yesterday, we got word. Uh, it still felt a little bit shocking because you, you were waiting for it in June, you're waiting for it in July, you're waiting for it in August. And Taylor didn't happen till September. Yeah, and they've been a little friskier as of late. You know, not like awesome or anything, but they, they had a playoff sweat longer than I think most would have expected, especially in the AL East. So there it is, Red Sox fans. It's a it's a new era uh, starting today. So that's got to be exciting. Todd's got to be excited. Well, and we'll ask him about it. And, and Sarah, before we move on uh, with sound from Sam Kennedy, the team's president, uh, Sarah, any thoughts? I mean, we all knew it was coming, right? Like a matter of time, new era for Red Sox fans. And hopefully... Hopefully Todd's in a better mood. Hopefully he's in a good mood. Well, it, yeah. And I think that folks like Todd are part, probably part of the reason why uh, this decision was made. I'll explain that uh, when we speak with Carl Ravage coming up in just a bit. Uh, here's Sam Kennedy talking about this decision. Look, like I said, we, we, need to, we need to be competitive. We need to be playing for a postseason spot, playing meaningful games in September and playing baseball in October. Those are the expectations. Um, and we're, we're going to not rest until we're back at that stage. We, we own this. Look, there's, this is a really painful day um, for a lot of reasons, especially the personal side of it. Um, and there's blame to go around. There's blame on, on me, our, our ownership. There's blame uh, for that on-field staff deserves blame. I'm sure some of the players would say they haven't performed up to expectations. Um, we all fell short of our collective goal, so there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, it's a really tough business. We felt we needed to make significant change uh, with these two positions, and that w- that's what we've done. In speaking with reporters, Sam also specifically said that Theo Epstein is not an option to take over as head of baseball operations. And Sam would know he and Theo have been uh, friends since they were ch- uh, children. Uh, he also said he envisions Alex Cora remaining in the same spot as the Red Sox manager. I've got some thoughts about that, and I'll share those when uh, we speak with Carl coming up. The Red Sox and Yankees split a doubleheader yesterday, by the way. They're both 74 and 73, tied for fourth place in the American League East. The Blue Jays faced the Rangers in the fourth game of a home series in Toronto, and it went like the other three games went. Jonah Heim cranks one deep out into center. Kiermaier turns to look up. It is gone. Sucked into that tiny section uh, in right center that's closest to the batter's eye. Jonah Heim blasts his 17th home run of the year, and the Rangers now lead it 4-2. That from 105.3, the fan Kevin Gossman, the Blue Jays' ace, got knocked around. Here's what it sounded like at the end of the game in Toronto. Low has it. Show out at a close play to end the ball game and end the series. As the Blue Jays are swept, Texas beats them nine to two. Yeah, that was our friend Dan Showman on the Blue Jays television network. They not only lost four straight games, the Rangers, they got absolutely obliterated at a time when, of course, they're trying to stay relevant in the American League wildcard race. 
At the end of the day, and I'm looking at the standings as we speak, the Blue Jays a game and a half behind Seattle for that last American League spot. By the way, uh, since our last podcast, Max Scherzer spoke with reporters about his season-ending injury. Uh, here's Max. Woke up this morning. I could feel that you know I this I was pretty sore when I woke up this morning, so I knew uh, this could be bad. You know, going to an MR tube. Uh, you know. Didn't know what was going to come out on the other side, and so they get the news that's a Terry's major strain. You know, that's a muscle belly, not the ligaments or the tendons. But in some ways, I'm almost relieved that's not worse. You know, I'm glad that's not worse. You know, fully expecting to make a full recovery, no surgeries. You know, that that that's really good. As for what happens from here on out, you know, just, just got to listen to what my body says. I'll throw a ball when I can throw a ball, but it sounds like I'm not going to be able to throw a ball for a little bit. So, who knows? So the Rangers will have to plow ahead without Max Scherzer, without Jacob deGrom. Uh, and that series in Toronto was a big step moving in that direction. The biggest series of the weekend is down in Baltimore. The Rays and the Orioles going into play on Thursday. The Orioles with a two-game lead over Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay took a lead in the third inning. 2-1 to Arena. Swing and a line drive over first. It's a base hit skidding toward the right field corner. Rounding third, coming home, Yandy Diaz. Hicks picks it out of the corner. They're going to wave Brandon Lau. Here comes the relay throw to the plate. Instead, it's going to go to third, and Randy with a head first line and a triple. It's a two-run triple the other way for Randy. That from 620 WDAE. Now the Orioles will come back to tie three all, and then this happened. 3-1 is hit high in the air and deep to center. This has a chance. Mullins back at the wall, leaps, and it's gone. Luke Rayleigh with the bomb to center field. The Rays are back on top at 4-3 to three in the seventh. And this is what it sounded like at the end. Pete Fairbanks on the mound for Tampa Bay. Two out, two strikes. Here it comes. Swing and a miss. He got him. Pete Fairbanks fans the side in the ninth for the first time since July 22nd. The Rays are only a game out of first. They get a big homer from Luke Rayleigh, and they take game one of this four-game series. Final score, Rays four. Orioles, three. At the end of the day, the Rays a game behind the Orioles in the AL East, but really two games uh, ahead still in the loss column. Bruce, I'm going to ask you to comment in a moment on Taylor's fandom, but Taylor, how are you feeling uh, as you watch this play out? Ooh, not great. How about Buster. the booing at the end? That shocked me that a little weird. bit. Like they weird. did the best record in the American League. Come on. Yeah. Like yeah. losing is a part of the experience. I, I wasn't watching, so maybe they were booing some like excitement from the Rays. You know, you know how Baltimoreans can can be busters. But uh it's it's okay. I, I actually I don't know. I'm feeling a little apocalyptic today. Like that was that wow. was that was rough last night. I mean, Savali was dealing. Uh, I heard I was listening a little bit on the radio that that was their the race. They have 34 consecutive innings of shutout baseball. Um, so looks look who has the upper hand in the bullpen now. Uh, I don't know, man. It's uh, you know, they could turn it around today, but I, I'm just not feeling great this morning. But we should celebrate. I mean, we you know obviously have fun with the Orioles, uh, but we should also mention, my God, Tampa Bay Rays players. They are so resilient. <laughs> Everything they dealt with this year, Shane McClanahan and Wanda Franco and guys dropping left and right, and they just keep on winning. So, Bruce, are you feeling it for uh, for Taylor? I mean, a little bit. I've, <laughs> I've been paying as much attention to, to, to the Orioles because, I mean, hey, the Mets are actually winning a couple no. games against the Diamondbacks. So, I mean, if I could give all the attention to uh, the Mets right now. But, I mean, hey, I, I always feel a little bit for Taylor. He's, he's always been very nice to me. Okay.
Hey, do you Thanks, accept uh, the the consolation there, Taylor? I, I do accept the consolation. And Buster, can the Rays die already? My God, they are they are the zombie that all the, all their limbs have been hacked off. They're just bouncing around on one leg, and they're they're still kicking our butts. Yeah, pretty impressive. By the way, uh, Bruce mentioned the Diamondbacks. They got blown out again uh, in City Field. Uh, you just got the feeling watching them play yesterday. That is a tired team. And they had to fly back last night to face the Cubs in this weekend series. We've got the Cubs and the Diamondbacks in this great National League wildcard race on Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, another team in that National League race, the Miami Marlins, uh, they announced that Sandy Alcantara is dealing with a sprained UCL. Alcantara told uh, reporters that he's feeling 100%, but Skip Schumacher, the Miami manager, is not committing whether or not he's going to pitch again during the course of the regular season. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, we got the college game day picks pod week three. Uh, Reese Davis, Pete Thamel. Actually, no Pete Thamel. That's the whole bit. It's Reese Davis, Stanford Steve, no Pete Thamel. I stepped in for Pete Thamel, and I did wow. my best. It was kind of a kind of a mean Pete Thamel impression at the top of the show. Reese told me to do it. But then I, you know, continued up with his picks and we had a lot of fun. Sarah uh, texted me and said she laughed while she was uh, editing it. So that's a good sign. It was uh, hilarious. It, Taylor is go being, ahead, Sarah. Taylor's being modest. He crushed it. It was hilarious. Everyone go check it out on YouTube. It was so, so, so funny. Steve, Stanford Steve was cracking up. I haven't seen him laugh like that. It's hard to make Stanford life. Steve laugh. And he was chuckling and giggling up a storm. Taylor crushed it. Thanks. Sarah. That's awesome. The NFL schedule drops this week. And you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. That's vividseats.com. Dot com today, code baseball. Vivid Seats, experience it live. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All aboard. It's the Ravi Train with Carl Ravage. On Baseball Tonight.
The Robbie Train, Carl Ravitch, play-by-play man on Sunday Night Baseball. Robbie, how you doing? I'm great, Buster. we got two big games the last two weeks of the regular season. Let's go. Diamondbacks, Cubs, let's go. Let's go. Let's dive into it, though. Bloom was fired by the Red Sox. Uh, we get that word from uh, Sam Kennedy and from the organization on Thursday. What was your initial reaction? Uh, my initial reaction was not a shock given the last place finishes and where they are now. My other post initial reaction was, you know, it felt like he was given an edict to trim the payroll, build up the farm system, make this team competitive on a yearly basis. And it felt like they were, they were getting close to that. But it was one foot in the pool and one foot out. We'll sign Devers to a massive deal. We'll trade Mookie Betts. We've seen Casas and Duran play really well, and yet it doesn't feel like whatever the agenda, the assignment was, that it was something that ownership was going to, you know, accept. And I'm I'm a little torn by it because it feels like he was doing what he was told to do but obviously the results in the short term were nowhere near what the expectation of the fan base was. It's a lot like Dombrowski, right? Dombo was yeah, brought they, in to yes. push the ball yes. across the finish line. They win a championship and they fire him <laughs> because they didn't like, they didn't like where they were. And then they bring Heim in. They essentially agree to slow play it, which is, you know, Heim's uh, focus on trying to yep. get value yep. in each deal that he makes and to slowly build up over time and because it took too long and Fenway Park started emptying out this year to a large degree, it felt like that the Red Sox ownership was like, okay, we don't like that either. A lot of similarities. There's no question about it. There was a great article in the Boston Herald by Gabrielle Starr about the similarities, you know, about Theo Epstein lasting nine years. But there was a lot of good fortune there, and he could have been out after four or five if things didn't work out well. So, yeah, there are a lot of similarities. Um, and now the question becomes, you know, what what's the next step? And, and the other sideline, I was just curious, you know, and you would maybe have some better insight into it, but does the, does the move by the Red Sox impact – at all the feeling of the ownership group in New York, meaning the Yankees. We've seen the Mets make a deal, a change. We're going to see the Red Sox make a change. You know, the Yankees have had less success than the Red Sox, and they still have Brian Cashman running it. I'm not suggesting they should do that. I'm just wondering if you think there's some type of effect on them at all because Boston was proactive this way. No. Uh, I, I think that Hal Steinbrenner is going to do what he's going to do. Uh, it does give them some political cover, maybe. And as you mentioned, I, I mean, it, it feels like you're, um, you know, maybe put some pressure on the Yankees. I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I just, I think Hal does his own thing. I think in yeah, the end. I would uh, hope so. Yeah, that's, uh, that's where he lands. I'd say the one thing about the candidates that have been thrown out there, uh, as possible replacements. I think the one big mistake the Red Sox could make, they can't bring in a first-time guy. If you were going to bring in a first-time guy, Carl, to me, you might as well just keep Heim. Yeah, the first-time guy, if I were going to consider a first-time guy, it would be named Alex Cora. That's the guy yes. I think I think he's the guy that would love to, and we've seen him We've seen him do it, you know, not at the major league level, but certainly uh, – you know, with the Caribbean series and things like that, he, he would be great. Uh, you know, he, I think that's something he would eventually like to do. I'm not suggesting that's what he wants to do now. I think he's as good a manager as there is in baseball. So, you know, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. But if I was going to get a first-time guy, he'd be the guy I would ask for. 
Well, and you surround him with a lot of smart people who give him the help that he needs while he manages. We've heard, I've heard stories this year about how he's gotten, you know, uh, more involved in some of the player development questions within the minor league system. You can plug in the gap. I agree with you. I think Alex would be a terrific choice. Uh, and you could, he could do that while managing because I think he has great instincts and he has a great feel for the marketplace in a way that I don't really necessarily think Heim did. All right, let's yep. talk uh, about this weekend's game, Diamondbacks and Cubs. It's pretty exciting when, for us because we get to talk about a lot of players we haven't talked about yet. Yeah, both both of these teams, and, you know, it feels a little bit like more some of the players on the Cubs we have talked about, certainly the way that Bellinger is having a great year. We've gotten used to seeing Dansby Swanson in the postseason with the uh, Atlanta Braves. But on the other side, there's so much young talent, and, and it's interesting, both of these teams – are going into this series in which you really have got to win this series, um, suffering. You know, n- neither offense has been very good. They're both coming off series setbacks to teams you would argue they should they should beat. And again, I, I throw out just because the Mets are where they are in the race doesn't mean when they are playing well they're not capable of beating anybody. And they certainly they certainly handled their business against the Diamondbacks. And heck, the Mets look like the team that was going to the postseason, not Arizona. All that being said, there's so much great young talent, especially in the outfield. Corbin Carroll's rookie of the year. Uh, they catch everything. They play good defense. We'll see some base stealing. They're, they're two exciting teams, uh, both who probably are surprising in the fact that they're where they are now, um, you know, given what we expectations were coming in. We're going to see a lot of Corbin Carroll. We're going to talk a lot about Corbin Carroll on Sunday night uh, on the broadcast. We're going to be hearing from him as well, I'm sure. Uh, and we're going to be seeing a lot of web gems because these teams can play some defense. Uh, Carl, before you go, I want to talk to you about the Blue Jays, who had an absolutely disastrous series against yeah. the Texas Rangers. May have finished them. We've talked so much this year, of course, about the Mets and the Padres being dis- big disappointments. I think the Blue Jays might be in that category as well because this is supposed to be their window to win. I love the talent on the Blue Jays. I, look, I, if if the Manoa situation is sort of a, just a microcosm of, of, of more dysfunction, I don't know. But when things like that happen, and he was supposed to be the guy, you know, coming into this year, and it has gone so sideways and the different reports about reporting, not reporting, AAA, et cetera, um, it, it just looks like things are a little out of control and unraveling, and sometimes that permeates the entire organization and the clubhouse. Again, not being there every single day, but talking to some of the people that are involved with them, it, it certainly seems like there's just there's an inability to put your finger on it, but there's just something that's not right. And for a team that's got so many superstars and really good pitching, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. Now, there's a perception within some corners of that clubhouse that, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of carte blanche for the players, a lot of uh, maybe yep. too much. And, yep. and maybe the Manoa situation is an example of that. 30 seconds, Tampa Bay, Orioles, huge series. Tampa Bay wins the first game. What do you think? Yeah, this is a good one. I mean, is it a litmus test on whether the young players are feeling it? Because the young players have succeeded at every level and won championships at most levels, even though it hasn't been the major league level. It's an easy one to fall back on. Um, And the experience of the Rays and their postseason, et cetera, and a guy like Glass now leading them, uh, you know, I it's a, I think it's just a great test for Baltimore. Again, they've passed every single test this year. 
here comes one where it's end of September, you know, everything's on the line. You're dealing with an experienced manager, an experienced team in this type of environment. It's a, uh, it's a great, great test. I, I don't think that they're too young. I think that they can perform here and they can, uh, you know, they can, they can do enough to remind everybody we've been in first most of the year. We are the better team, but boy, this is a great test for them. That's for sure. Brandon Hyde's going to win American League Rookie or Manager of the Year, uh, but I think Kevin Cash deserves a lot of considerations. Incredible how resilient that team has been every in the year. Face of all every their injuries year. and issues of the, with Wander Franco. All right, Carl, yeah. I will see you in Arizona. All right, Buster, thank you. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website. ToddRadom.com. Todd, how you doing today, the day after the Red Sox make a monumental change? Well, Buster, it represents the beginning of something new and hopefully something better. So I'm doing well. And I knew you were going to ask me about this. So let's go. All right. So I, I'm the, the more that I process what happened, I really believe that the reason why the Red Sox are making this change, especially as Sam Kennedy lauds the work that uh, Heim did in the farm system, I really think it's because of folks like you that they're making this change. I think this is all PR. What do you think? I can't disagree. Buster, I heard from a friend who has season tickets at Fenway, and the other night, as you and probably a lot of our listeners know, uh, Yankees, Red Sox, tickets going on the secondary market for a dollar each. And that day, he received an appeal from the club via his season ticket representative. Hey, come on down. We're going to have a seats tag. You can move up. Of course, what was left unsaid was the fact that they're raising prices because prices never go down. It's not only the Red Sox. So the optics of all of this, given the timing, given the way the club is finishing this 2023 season, yeah, I mean, optics matter, and I don't disagree with you at all. So tell me who you'd like to see in this job. I think it's complicated. It's not. Uh, we're not in the days of Lou Gorman walking through that door anymore. Theo Epstein isn't <laughs> walking through that door. This is obviously a job that that requires a depth mix of uh, appreciation for appreciation for analytics, an MBA, something that you and I don't have. And most importantly for me, uh, I think that the, it requires somebody with a feel for the game. Now, what does that mean? It really sounds trite. It sounds like, you know, bloviation in a certain sense. But you got to know the players to to invest your money in, in a way that seemingly hasn't gone well these last few years. And I will say this. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about the fact that everything that's been uh, dictated has come from ownership. And that's absolutely true. Uh, I'm sure uh, Mr. Bloom didn't come into this looking to trade uh, Mookie Betts. No. Uh, but we can't fire the owners. And furthermore, as a Red Sox fan of a certain age, an expression I use quite frequently on this podcast, uh, I can appreciate the fact that this group and whatever the combination has brought four World Series titles to Fenway Park in this millennium, something which I never thought I'd say. So, yeah, there's a certain amount of benefit of the doubt, but these are the, uh, what was that Donald Rumsfeld quote about uh, known knowns, known unknowns, going to uh, war with the army you have, this kind of a thing. And given the Red Sox resources, um, whoever comes in there, hopefully they're going to do a, a better, more complete job. And we'll see what happens with the farm system. 
we we've been hearing about the fact that the farm system is vastly improved, but you and I both know that prospects it's like the tide. They wash in and wash out all the time. Yeah, it was it was uh, interesting to see so many of the beat writers who cover the Red Sox on a daily basis uh, writing on Twitter about how great Heim was to work with. He was very responsive, uh, you know. And I think that the, the the what was said in that press conference yesterday with Sam Kennedy about uh, appreciation, affection for Heim as a person was a hundred percent real. Like people say. Uh, great things about him, but I, you know, all along, and I, you know, if I'm asked me my opinion on it, I tell him, I, I just don't think that you had the, that your sense of urgency matched that of the the market. Uh, it always felt like to me, like his focus was on incrementally getting better. And I just don't think that style necessarily plays in a big market uh, like Boston. We've seen the Dodgers, Andrew Friedman, who Jaime used to work for, they used to do that, uh, or they, they, the Dodgers do that in, in some of the deals that they make, but they also go for the big strike and they go for the moment. And they, you know, every trade deadline, we've seen the Dodgers with their resources be really aggressive. And yes, you're right. We should, uh, you know, put it, uh, put the context out there properly that a lot of the, the flexibility that Heim would have to deal with has to come from ownership. And we don't know exactly, you know, the resources that they had available to them but it never felt like there was this urgency that you and I know exists in Red Sox nation. Yes. These are not the, uh, the Tampa Red Sox or the Boston Rays. Um, and yeah, I mean, we can nitpick about Trevor story. We can talk about contract extensions. We could talk about them letting go of Sandra Bogarts, which is probably a good move. That kind of money for, a guy of his age, regardless of his uh, emeritus status, if you want to look at it that with that franchise, you know, there's a lot of nuance here. But perception, as always, becomes reality. And the perception of uh, this man presiding over these four seasons where was 2021 a fluke buster with them going as far as they did? Right. I don't know. You know, that's on his record. And that's a that's a, a green check mark in a, a good way. Um, but. Uh, scuffling for the basement. We talked about this last week with the Yankees of all teams. It's not a good look. And given the expectations, again, I'm going to just say it, and the amount of money that is coming in to that franchise, they are a financial juggernaut. Now, listen, John Henry may be spending a certain amount of time in Liverpool that some fans wish that he would be uh, concentrating a little bit more on the uh, the fins, but that's what we got, and on to a new era. And I am an optimist, Buster. I've said this many, many times in everything in life. So uh, I'm hopeful that they bring in the right person, whoever that might be, and uh, we can turn the corner and move toward a more prosperous era. Yeah, and I'd say this too. You know, talking with folks within the Red Sox organization, uh, what I would tell them is getting the feedback from people within the franchise. Uh, there is an open question in that building about whether or not the, the baseball team is a priority in the way that it used to be. Whether or not that's the case, I don't know, but that's the perception within the building. All right, let's get to this week's Forgotten Field. All right, Buster, today we are going to take a look at Cleveland's League Park, located about three miles north and east of Progressive Field at Lexington Avenue and East 66th League Park was built in 1891 to house the National League's Cleveland Spiders. They played there until the team was contracted 
1899. League Park served as the home of the American League's Cleveland Blues, today's Guardians, beginning with their inaugural American League season in 1901. It was also the first home of a current NFL franchise, not the Cleveland Browns, but the Cleveland Rams, today's Los Angeles Rams, and it was the host of the Negro American League's Cleveland Buckeyes from 1949 uh, onward. League Park never had lights, but on July 27, 1931, it hosted a night game between the legendary Homestead Grays and the barnstorming House of David team using the Kansas City Monarchs' famous portable lighting system. The park was built around a saloon and two other houses whose owners refused to sell their land. This meant that League Park had the smallest seating capacity in the majors, topping mm. off at 21,400 seats. It also meant that home plate was only 290 feet from right field, which featured a 40-foot high wall that was constructed from three different types of surfaces. So balls hit off the wall, bounced in different directions, depending upon where they hit, resulting in a pinball effect that the fans loved, even if the right fielders there didn't. Spiders owner Frank DeHaas Robeson was a trolley line operator buster, and he strategically located his new venue with both public transportation and profit in mind. The park hosted its first game on May 1st, 1891. Cy Young was the Cleveland pitcher that day, and a wow. crowd of some 9,000 spectators saw the hometown Spiders beat Cincinnati 12-3. to this original wooden structure was replaced by a modern steel and concrete ballpark in 1910. Club owners considered new names for it, among them Forest Field, but they stuck with the familiar League Park. The park was first designated by Cleveland's, designed, excuse me, by Cleveland's Osborne Engineering, who would go on to create Fenway Park, Tiger Stadium, Yankee Stadium, and a host of other sports venues. It featured an innovative series of ramps and walkways that helped fans get to their seats quickly and without crowding. Completely modernized and expanded to two decks of seating, the new league park opened on April 21st, 1910, amid some controversy. The ballpark was built using non-union labor, and fans attending the home opener were greeted by picketers at every entrance. Local labor leaders threatened to fine any union members who attended with a $5 fine. Uh, as was the case with the old league park, 19 years pr previously, Cy Young started for Cleveland, even if this was a different franchise and a different league, but this time he was cuffed around Buster, losing to the Detroit Tigers 5-0. League Park's only World Series took place in 1920, when the Indians defeated Brooklyn. Cleveland wrapped up their first world championship there on, on October 12th. Two days prior, Indian second baseman Bill Wamsgans made the only unassisted triple play in World Series in Game 5. New team owner Jim Dunn rechristened the ballpark for himself in 1921, but the name soon reverted to League Park. The Indians shifted their home games to the gigantic and brand-new Cleveland Stadium in July 1932, but they moved back to League Park in 1934, hammered by financial woes in the midst of the Great Depression and unable to sell a meaningful number of tickets at that giant edifice on the lake. Within a few years, the club began splitting their home schedule between the two ballparks, playing weekdays and Saturday afternoons at League Park and Sunday and holiday games at Cleveland Stadium. This arrangement lasted until 1946, when new owner Bill Vick moved the club into a huge Cleveland Stadium full-time, 
starting in 1947. League Park hosted its final American League game on September 21st, 1946. It was a 5-3, 11-inning loss to Detroit, and it was witnessed by less than 3,000 fans. The Indians eventually turned the League Park site over to the city of Cleveland, which demolished much of it in 1951. One piece of the ballpark remained and still does to this day. A ticket office behind the right field corner built in 1909. After decades of neglect, the site of League Park was rededicated in 2014 as a public park and baseball heritage museum, a fitting tribute to League Park, which is this week's Forgotten Field. And this is one of your best episodes, I think, uh, Todd, in terms of the depth that you have. I mean, first off, I'm thinking League Park. Uh, it reminds me when you're describing the way the ball pinballed off different surfaces. It's kind of like Oracle Park in San Francisco. Like right field there is a nightmare. You never know which way the ball is going to go. But the other thought occurred to me, and I'm hitting you with this very cold because as you're talking about Cy Young, I was reminded of recent conversations I had with my son who's a huge sports fan, and, you know, as uh, you referenced uh, Cy Young, uh, for whom the, uh, you know, the major pitching award is named in both leagues. And it occurred to me just recently that I was like, you know, they should change the name of that award. Like uh, the modern day, you know, players uh, even don't know who Cy Young is. So why not update that, rebrand that award, maybe name it the Nolan Ryan Award. And interestingly, Nolan Ryan, as great as he was, he never won the Cy Young Award. Uh, are you up for something like that? Would you would you co-sign something like that? Maybe not necessarily Nolan Ryan, maybe it'd be somebody else, but make it more relevant at the award where people understand exactly how great that uh, that player was. It's a great question, Buster, and it's probably a double-edged sword. Uh, we heard a similar conversation in the NBA, whose logo famously features, right. although they don't say it, Jerry West. And there was a thought to update that to Kobe Bryant. Um, and of course we've seen a reckoning in terms of MLB awards. Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the first commissioner of baseball, no longer the MVP award. There's been a movement to, uh, rename that for Josh Gibson. So it's an interesting thing. You're right. Everything evolves. You've got to make things more relevant. Um, a very different game when Cy Young pitched all at oh, 511 victories. Can you even fathom? No, can't yeah. even fathom. Yeah. So, but here's, you know, like any branding project, you say, why are you doing this? I do this every day of my life for a career. Um, so you've got the why, and then you say, what are we going to do with it? So who would it be? So if you have Sandy Koufax, let's say, which would be a pretty awesome tribute and Sandy Koufax is still yeah. with us. Um, that would be some food for thought, but um, what do you do for, for Cy Young? You can't just bury him in the past. It's an interesting question. I think it, it uh, bears some investigation. What are we going to do about this? Who do we talk to? You know, baseball yeah. writers. Right. Exactly. That's a, be interesting, an interesting conversation with the baseball writers, but your major award is named for someone that most baseball fans don't know anything about. So I, I you know, I, I, I don't know. It just, uh, it just occurred to me, uh, and, and also, as you referenced, like the, the game that he played is so different than the game we have now. All right, let's get to this week's quiz. All right, week 27, folks, and it is a tight one with Buster leading the pack with 10. Both Sarah and Taylor have eight. So this is the time where champions are made. So let's do it, guys. The New York Yankees are wearing an advertising patch on their uniforms, but it's not the first time they have done so. What product did they advertise on their jerseys when they opened up the MLB season in Japan 
in 2004? Was it A, Toyota? Was it B, Panasonic? Was it C, Rico? Or was it D, Nintendo? The New York Yankees opened the MLB season in Japan in 2004. They wore ads on their jerseys. Toyota, Panasonic, Rico, or Nintendo? Yeah, Bruce, I think you need to be involved in this as well since you're with us today. So I'm going to give you a crack at this as well. Uh, Taylor, what do you got? Uh, I'll go Nintendo. All right. No Sarah? Oh, either Panasonic or Nintendo. So I'm going to go Panasonic since Taylor said Nintendo. All right, Bruce? Mm, I'm going to go Panasonic as well. Okay, I'm going Toyota. How could four people play this and all, all be wrong? Because it was Rico. <laughs> <laughs> because wow. it's the weekly quiz and we're terrible. I mean, it's it's embarrassing. You figure one, four people. Somebody would Rico, get it Rico, right. huh? Rico, the Yankees wore patches, large square patches on their uniforms against the uh, the Rays for Rico. The Devil Rays, excuse me, was it was 2004, and 2004, not a good season for the Yankees. So they started out with advertising and see what they get. Oh, my God. They Well, they, you're right. And they get uh, a lot of people, apparently, who didn't notice exactly what <laughs> that was. They didn't have any questions about it. Yeah, I have an excuse because it's been well, it's, uh, well established in this podcast that I just noticed nothing like that. Uh, Sarah, Taylor, Bruce, you have no excuses. Sorry about that. Thanks, Todd. All right, guys, have a good weekend. Thank you. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing on this Friday? I'm doing great, Buster. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, excited to go to Arizona. It was fun. I, I think you'll agree with me. Like the yesterday on our Sunday Night Baseball Zoom call, it was a lot of fun to dig into two teams we have not seen on uh, Sunday Night Baseball this year. New players, uh, new conversation. There's, I think the broadcast on Sunday is going to be terrific. Uh, I got a lot of elements in place. Uh, are you ready for a bleacher tweet right off the bat? That's for you. Sure. Why not? 
All right, Don Irvine says, writes, I know that Sarah Langs loves Juan Soto, but his slash line since joining the Padres is below his Nationals numbers. Is this the new normal form or a temporary aberration? I think that we need to throw out what happened at the end of last year. And if you look at this season, Juan Soto is just about what we expect from him, maybe a bit below if you look at average or whatever. But what I look at is when he hits the ball, he hits it really hard. When he hits the ball really hard, really good things happen. He just 30th home run the other day. Only 10 guys in baseball history have hit more home runs than Juan Soto has before turning 25. And remember, he played 47 games in 2020. If he had played a full season that year, he would be so much further up that list. And I think if you look at what he has done, the big issue this year has been hitting balls on the ground. He has talked about that in the past, knowing that that can be a bugaboo. To me, it has nothing to do with the O since he changed teams it last year and a half. And that's something he knows to address, and he will. But overall, I think he's having a really great season for him. Unfortunately, the team has not overall had this season we expected from them. Yeah, and what's interesting is is that uh, now we're a little bit more than a year from his free agency. Uh, Sarah, I have no feel for where he's going to land. Like in, at the end of uh, when, once we get into 2025, I, I have no feel for it. Uh, you just wonder some team's going to emerge. Maybe it's the Yankees, you know, or maybe it's the uh, maybe it's the Red Sox. We'll have to uh, we'll have to wait and see. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 25. So speaking of exciting young outfielders, an even younger one, I want to talk about Carmen Carroll, who, as you alluded to earlier, we have among the two teams on Sunday Baseball this weekend with the Diamondbacks. So he is one homer shy of 25 home runs this year. He has 47 stolen bases already. He would be the second rookie with at least 25 homers and 30 stolen bases in the season, joining Mike Trout in 2012 with 30 homers and 49 stolen bases. So I sometimes talk about or even off the podcast rant about qualifiers and where we set them and everything. And when Carol does this, you will see everyone saying, oh, he's the second rookie, was 25 and 45. But I want everyone listening right now to know you can knock that down to 25 and 30. And he's still the second guy to do that. And given the fact that Trout had 49 stolen bases that year, Pretty realistic to figure he'll get three more over these next few weeks. He would be the first rookie with 25 and 50. Number two. Number two is 55. So the Braves have had 55 more home runs than the Dodgers this season. That is one and two in the majors. Braves have 282. Dodgers have 227. That would be the fourth largest difference between number one and two in home runs in baseball in a season behind only the 1884 White Stockings 
with 102 more home runs than the Columbus Buckeyes, the 1947 Giants, who had 65 more than the Pirates, and the 1936 Yankees, who had 59 more than Cleveland. I think that makes what the Braves are doing really, really exciting. I mean, obviously, the Twins saying the record back in 2019 was really fun to see, but if you remember, the Yankees were right behind them. Like, we didn't even know which team would end up with the record in that final week. And this year, it is the Braves doing this more so than any other team by a historic margin. Number one. Number one is 20. So I want to talk about Blake Snell's last 20 starts. And he has been so good that when I look at this man, he either works for his last 20 starts or if you go back one start and look at the last 20 from there, it's basically the same numbers. So he is one of two pitchers since 1901 with at least 150 strikeouts and fewer than 20 runs allowed in a 20-game span. So as I said, he has two overlapping spans of that this season. The most recent span, his last 20 starts, <clears throat> excuse me, he has 163 strikeouts, and then if you go back one, he has 161. The only other pitcher to do this did it across season, so... Usually, we would even throw that out, but because of the name, we came in. And it was 1999 to 2000. Pedro Martinez went 218 strikeouts over 19 starts on that one relief mm. appearance in that span. So the only guys have that many strikeouts and allow fewer than 20 runs in a 20-game span. Blake Snell right now and Pedro Martinez. All right. Uh, I love the Braves note, but I got to ask you about uh, Blake Snell and the Cy Young Award. Um, As of today, Sarah, I think if I were to fill out a ballot and I don't have a vote, uh, I would put Blake Snell at one. I would put Justin Steele two, and I I would put Spencer Strider three. And Spencer Strider, you know, his ERA is about a run higher than the other guys. But as we talked about, uh, you know, earlier this week or different shows I've done, uh, he, he's got an interesting situation because he's been, I think, the most dominant pitcher in the National League, generally speaking, but he's had five really bad outings that have sort of skewed his numbers. But that's how I would go. Snell, Steele, Spencer Strider. What about you? I think I agree with that. I mean, thinking after the game the other day with Snell, he really emerged as that farmer. I know people point to his walks, and he is on pace to be the first guy ever since Earn Runs became official to lead the majors in both ERA and walks in terms of most walks and the lowest ERA. But he wanted to start that game against the Dodgers. He wanted to go out there. He's pitched really well against them all year. And that's notable, too. He has done this against really good competition. I do think he's number one. And I do think Justin Seale is not getting enough love. So I agree that I would have him, too. Strider has such a fascinating season, as you said. I think there will be people who will 
vote for him automatically because of the strikeouts, because of that dominance. And I do think some people look at his ERA and say, oh, no, no way, he can't be top three. The truth is that Cy Young is not just about your ERA, right? It is about that dominance. It is about being the best overall pitcher. And there are a lot of ways for that to happen, especially these days when pitchers don't necessarily go as deep as they used to. That denominator for that ERA really takes the hit, right? And that number gets bigger. I think he has still been very good. I would not give him a first-place vote right now because there have been other pitchers who have been maybe more consistent than he has been. But he's going to set or come very close to a strikeout record. You look at his Winfrey, you look at that, you look at what pitching people will look at with the stuff and everything. And it's undeniable that he has been among the best in those categories. Yeah, he's had five starts this year in which he's allowed five earned runs or more. In those starts collectively, uh, he's got 20 in the third innings and 30 earned runs allowed. So you can see how they would take his ERA up really high. Besides those starts, his ERA is about 2.3. and striking out, you know, almost 40% of batters, that is worthwhile. But as I say, right now, I got Blake Snell winning the award. All right, Sarah, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Friday. Our pal Brian Stone King writes, and the Red Sox are a disaster. How much longer is sale contracted? Is story tradable? Cora seems tired. Besides Devers, Devers, I'd only keep Casas, Wong, and Duran. Don't tank, but do a complete reboot. Give the O's and Rays 2024, prep for 2025 and beyond. Thoughts? I just don't think you can think that way. Like, you can't do that if you're in Boston uh, you're in New York, you're in Philly. I just don't think it's it, you're in a position where you can tank. I mean, that's part of the reason why I think that Heim, you know, wasn't necessarily a fit for the marketplace was that there was this sort of long play or, you know, long, slow play that he was doing where there's more urgency in in Boston. Mm-hmm. And I also, yeah. I don't think it's as hopeless as you suggest for a couple reasons. One, yes, the Orioles are way ahead of the Red Sox in terms of where they are in their player development. But Taylor, you know this. We don't know if the Orioles' ownership is going to get on board with this thing. You know, oh, Tampa yeah. Bay has to constantly turn over its roster. Toronto, as much as as I said to Carl, you know, we've talked about the Padres. We talked about the Mets. You know what? The Blue Jays are as much of a disaster this year as any is either one of those teams because this is their window to compete, and they're not mm-hmm. moving ahead. So I don't think the landscape is nearly as stark, Brian, as you're making it seem for the Red Sox moving forward. Taylor, you agree with me? Oh, yeah. I mean, just the, the level of competition in the AL East is so high. I mean, like early on in the season, we're like, oh, this is the best division ever. All these teams, you know, one of these teams is going to be left out, but they're going to be playoff worthy. Like that same level of parity is going to continue to exist at least for the next year or two, I, I think. Yeah. And the Red Sox ownership, they have resources. And of I'd course, say this, yeah. if the Orioles were doing what the Braves have done and just locking up these young 21, 22, 23-year-olds and these, you know, eight-year contracts, I'd be like, yeah, okay, you've got a problem. But that's not happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like they've shown like a little... Uh, they, they haven't committed as much as I think Red Sox fans would like, but I, I think going around and being like, oh, we're this poor franchise and we need to reboot and build from the farm system. Yeah. That's just not... I mean, the, I, I, there's a, there's a, something I put in the rundown. Like they had like the number one, number two payroll like not too long ago. Like they've got plenty of money to spend. Yep. 
A hundred percent. All right, let's go to Stewie1969. He writes in, hi, Buster. Do you have any thoughts on who may be potential candidates to replace Bloom in Boston? So here's the deal. The one thing I'd say is you can't get a first-time guy. Like that to me would be a, a, it would make no sense. Mm -hmm. If you were going to hire a first-time candidate, someone who hasn't done this job before, someone who's going to have a learning curve working in Boston, then you might as well keep high and blown to me. (laughs) Uh, And I mentioned to, uh, to Carl that I thought Alex, Alex Gore to me is a, they, they could redefine that position to some degree, make him a head of baseball operations, give him a lot of help, a lot of support, people, uh, you know, that he can lean on uh, for working in the front office. But I think he has such good instincts that I would trust him. Do you feel like they, they're feeling like they missed out on, on David Stearns? Um, I'm sure that they were interested in David Stearns, and it, I don't think it's a coincidence that it all, you know, it didn't all play out until, uh, you know, David right. Stearns landed with the Mets. But uh, I don't know. I mean, David Stern's grown up a Mets fans. It feel like that 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 franchise had an advantage all along. Good point. PK Steinberg is our final tweet of the week. He writes in: Is this version of Corey Seager a result of the shift rule changes? I think you said last offseason that you expected him to benefit from it, or has he figured something out? So I got give all credit to Paul Hambakides, who said last winter when we gave him, you know, that the assignment of name the player who's going to benefit the most. From the rule changes, he came up with Corey Seager, and Corey Seager's is raking. Nice. Shout out Hembo. Way to, way to give your respects, Buster. You could have easily stolen that, stole that, and, and no, just not No, it was totally it. Hembo. That was the first time I heard anybody say that, and Hembo was the first guy on top of that. Right on. All right. Well, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching games this weekend. Thanks, everyone. That's it for today. That's it for this week. My thanks to Ravi, Sarah, Todd, Sarah, Taylor, Bruce. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.